Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have two pieces of language-related news, and then we'll talk about how you can use playwriting techniques to improve your writing. If you have some free time and are looking for an interesting project, the Oxford English Dictionary is asking for help antedating words. That means seeing if you can find a publication that uses a word earlier than the first citation they already have in the dictionary. The prefix ante, A-N-T-E, means earlier, so antedating is looking for an earlier date. And you probably have a good chance of success, too, because when the editors updated the entries they want help with, the digital resources we take for granted today didn't exist. So the odds are good you could find an earlier use just by searching databases such as Early English Books Online and Google Books. They just need people to do it. And how fun would it be to know that you found the first citation that goes on to appear in the Oxford English Dictionary? Here's how they describe it. Quote, the resources to allow a complete recheck of all these databases are simply not available at the moment. The OED's lexicographers are fully occupied with other aspects of work on the dictionary. But this is where crowdsourcing can come in. People can contribute the quotations they find either by filling in a form on the appeal webpage or by tweeting them using the hashtag OEDAntedatings, unquote. People have already found an earlier citation for the word masculinity. The OED had the first use in 1748, but someone found an example from 1571. And here's another one, meaningless. The OED had the first use in 1796, but someone found an earlier example from 1728. You can find more instructions in the appeals form at public.oed.com slash appeals slash OED hyphen antedatings. And I will put that link in the show notes and on the transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com. Or you can put the information in a tweet with the hashtag OED antedatings. Next, we'll talk about capitalizing the word black when you're using it to refer to people of color. A flurry of style guides have updated their entries on the word black in the last few weeks, and they all say to capitalize it. The AP Stylebook, the Chicago Manual of Style, the AMA Manual of Style, APA Style, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, the Seattle Times, the Boston Globe, NBC News, and probably a bunch more that I missed, all say to capitalize black when describing a person and not a general color. Some of those style guides and publications may have already done it that way for a while, and Ebony Magazine has done it since the 1970s. But for the two style guides I follow the closest, AP and Chicago, this is a change, and an off-cycle change, so it's a big deal. What to do about white is more troublesome, though. A lot of the style guides say you can still do it either way, capital or lowercase. There's a lot to say, and I was originally going to have a guest writer do a segment, and then I thought it's so tricky I should do it myself, and finally I decided I should elevate black voices on this one, so I'm going to refer you to another podcast, this week's Lexicon Valley hosted by John McWhorter. In it, he actually covers a lot of newsy word topics, like defund the police, Black Lives Matter, and calling white women Karen— The episode is titled Defund Karen, and the part about capitalizing black and white starts around the 11-minute mark, but the whole thing is interesting. 
he ends up concluding that we should lowercase white, which surprised me. And Slate also has an interesting article by Julia Craven about the AP-style decision, the history of capitalizing the word black, and how she feels about it. What I can tell you is that you should now capitalize the word black when you're describing a person. That has definitely become the agreed-upon way to do it for professional writers. Next, we're going to talk about playwriting techniques and how they can help your fiction writing. At first glance, novelists and playwrights seem to write in completely different mediums. Traditional theater's storytelling is based on witnessing events from the outside, while books give readers a glimpse inside a character's head. A theater audience surmises a character's intentions through movement, gesture, dialogue, and the audience understands the character's world from visual clues such as setting, lighting, costuming, and props. On the other hand, books get to construct that same world and character perspective in a much more intimate way. Readers use their imaginations to translate the words on the page into those visuals. What can a novelist then learn from a playwright? Quite a bit, actually. Although novels and plays use very different types of writing, there are elements of theater that writers have used in books for centuries. Let's take a look at what drama and fiction have in common and ways you can use techniques from theater and playwriting to improve upon your book or story. The most prominent example of theater's influences on the story form is the development of plot structure. Aristotle, the ancient Greek playwright, explained how a drama should contain three parts. Act one, the beginning, is where the characters and world building is first introduced. Act two, the middle, is where the protagonist undergoes a series of challenges that become more difficult until they reach the climax of the plot. And Act 3, the resolution, is where the challenges are overcome and affect the protagonist in some life-changing way. These events will have also changed the world itself. Eventually, the three-act Greek drama evolved through the advocacy of the Roman poet Horace into a five-act structure. The five-act structure was a standard in Shakespeare's canon of plays and became more formalized by the German playwright Gustav Freytag. You may already be familiar with Freytag's pyramid, commonly taught in school as the definition of basic story structure. The exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and the resolution. Plays use scenes to move the plot forward, and well-written novels can use them too. Part of keeping that interest alive is making sure each scene has a single narrative purpose. In a method that replicates Aristotle's classic breakdown, each scene in a play has a beginning, middle, and end. Likewise, a novel's scenes should have that same sense of motion. Consider the following questions in constructing a scene's beginning, middle, and end. In the beginning, what is each character's goal? Why are they pursuing it and how? For the middle of the scene, show what obstacles prevent the character from getting what they want. That's the scene's conflict. How does the character handle the problem? The end of the scene shows the outcome caused by the character's actions. Are there consequences to a character's actions? How does the character react? That reaction and any consequences presented at the scene's end should feed into the goals of the next scene. 
Overall, a narrative change happens between the beginning of a scene and its end. Characters should have a realization, travel to a new location, win a battle. If there isn't a solid change, then maybe the scene isn't necessary to the story and you can cut it. To help understand scene building, here's a short example. In the beginning, George picks some roses from a garden. He wants to give the roses to his mother for her surprise birthday party happening in an hour. In the middle, well, the roses came from a neighbor's garden, and now that neighbor is furious. Whoops. George apologizes, but the roses are taken away. Time is running out until the party starts. In the end, George rushes to the florist and buys her roses instead. He arrives at the party in time. Huzzah! But then the neighbor knocks on her door to tell his mother about the theft. Now what will happen? That's a really basic example of an effective scene, but already you want to know what happens to George next. Theater is also action-focused, and the actor's physical choices help define the character. Novelists should keep in mind, too, a common writing weakness is presenting characters as talking heads without any physical descriptions of their surroundings and how they use it. Without these scene details, it's hard to visualize the characters, and a reader can lose interest. On the other hand, directors and actors think about character movement all the time. The theater process of building character gestures or movements into a scene is called blocking. To make a scene more dynamic, a novelist can consider how each of their scenes are blocked. A few questions a writer can think about when adding blocking are, where are characters in a space? Where do they move in a space? How close or far are characters in relation to each other? How are characters moving their hands, feet, arms while they're sitting, eating, or talking? And if characters are thinking, what's their body doing while this is happening? Unlike books, where an author can use words to describe a character's inner thoughts, feelings, and reflections, a theater audience can only surmise characters by what they see. Not only is action very important for playwriting, but so is dialogue. People aren't always straightforward about what they want. Often, when a person says something, it can convey different meanings. Saying hello between friends at a party would feel different from a man calling hello into a dark room he's never entered before, or saying hello to a person he finds attractive. Dialogue in plays carries an intention, in other words, their personal goal. Novelists should think about that hidden motivation, too. To construct livelier dialogue, when writing, ask yourself these questions. What do characters want? What is their goal for that scene? What can they say that doesn't say outright what their goal is? What conversation methods do they use to achieve their goal? Do they investigate, joke around, provoke? And by the end of the scene, do they succeed? To conclude, theater and fiction have much more in common than a reader or author may think. Don't hesitate to seek other forms of storytelling for inspiration and craft tools. By thinking like a playwright when constructing plots, scenes, and dialogue, novelists can often infuse more dramatics into their writing. That segment was written by Diana M. Foe, an independent scholar, playwright, and Hugo Award-nominated book editor. She has a double bachelor's degree in English and Russian literature from Mount Holyoke College and a master's in performance studies from NYU. 
Learn more about her work and editorial services at dianamfo.com. Finally today, I have an especially sweet familect story. Hello, Mignon. I've got a familect, well, more of a friend-elect story for you. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer now, uh, I forget exactly when, uh, but my friend Natalie and I went to the movies. We went to go see Josie and the Pussycats um, because we were teenagers and, and that was the cool thing to do that weekend. And we were alone in the theater and super early for the show. And I have no idea what we were talking about, but she said that she had never done something. And I said, nor have I. And she, she looked at me and she couldn't figure out what I said. She thought, nor have I, nor have I, nor have I, what does that mean? I had slid together my words, nor have I, and she heard nor have I or nor have I. And that has become, um, all these years later, we're, we're spread across the planet. She lives in Vietnam and, and I live in the Midwest. And we still send each other letters. And when we send letters to each other, we always sign it Norvi because that is our way of saying I love you and I miss you and I wish I could hug you. So uh, out of that misunderstanding, uh, we have found something to bond on and keep our friendship forever. Thanks. Thank you. That warmed my heart. There are so many people I miss and wish I could hug right now. Best to you and your friend and good job for keeping in touch for all those years. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all the Grammar Girl articles at the home of my network, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sims. And that's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.